This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Hello, and welcome to the Dora County Pulse podcast. My name is Deborah Fitzgerald. I'm editor of the Peninsula Pulse. And today in the Bailey's Harbor studio, we have State Representative Joel Kitchens, who represents all of Door County, all of Kiwani County, and a little bit of Brown County. Welcome, Joel. Well, thanks, Deb. Great to be here. I initially contacted you because we were starting the legislative session, and I just kind of wanted to pick your brain a little bit about what you saw on the horizon and what was going to be important to you. Now, when did this session start? Well, we were inaugurated on January 2nd. Okay. So we've essentially been back since then. Okay. And you're starting your fifth term. Right. So you won the election in 2022, taking 62.45% of the vote. You were probably pleased with that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Dora County cast the most votes, of course. It's yeah. it's about 10,000 higher in population than Kiwani County, but a total of 17,000 votes, and you got 9,500 versus you had a Democratic challenger this year, Roberta Thielen. She got 7,600. But then you also warded off a primary challenge. So how is that? You've never had that in your political career to date, have you? No, I well, not since the first time I ran when it was sure. when it was an open seat. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not something I welcome. But, <laughs> sure. But you know, you deal with what you you do, and you know, I won that. I think he got what twenty two percent, something like that. Yeah, it was. It, you pretty much smoked him. Yeah, <laughs> but it, it's still, you know, you still have to put the effort in, still get the signs up and all, and knock on doors. So, yeah, obviously I'd rather not have that, sure. but, you know. So they, there is a word for that, and it's a verb, and they call it primaried, but that wasn't necessarily primaried in the sense that they use that word, right? Normally it's the party that says, you know what, if you don't go along with us, we're going to get a Republican challenger or a Democratic challenger. So it really wasn't that. This was... Kind of a random Kiwani County board supervisor who decided to run for office. Yeah, I mean, it certainly didn't come from within the party, but there were a number of them around the state this time. And I think because of the the uproar over the last of the twenty twenty election, or yeah, twenty twenty election and that kind of thing, I think there were a number of those of people of that mindset, sort of that took on incumbents. None of them won around the state, mm-hmm. but it, it wasn't uncommon. Okay. So you're going to be our representative in the assembly for the next two years, which seems like an awfully short period of time. Yeah, sure seems that way to me. Yeah. <laughs> so, comes up and, every- you know, everyone I talk to says, geez, why, why don't you make it longer? And, and I, I mean, it's in the constitution that way. I think most people would rather it be four years or so. Yeah. Anyway, hmm. I think for everybody, not just myself, but I think for the citizens, they're not crazy about every two years, but mm-hmm. it is what it is. Congress, you know, House of Representatives is the same way. Okay. And so you're a fifth term now. So that means you're starting your 10th year? Yes. Okay. Wait, uh, starting, or starting, starting your eighth, eighth year. Right. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Okay, I have to yes. think about that. Sorry, I should never try and do math on the fly on the <laughs> podcast. But if you're starting your eighth year, what do you know now that you didn't know when you first started? Oh, man, there's so much I didn't know. The, the first two years, you know, you realize first off that unless you start things right away, as far as legislation, it's hard to get it done in two years. Hmm. So, you know, that first time you're just starting to figure out what you're doing and then it's 
time for elections again, you know? Mm-hmm. So I learned that, you know, an awful lot revolves around relationships too. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you want to get things done, you have to, you know, have people that trust you, you know, within the legislature. So that's helped a lot being down there, getting to know people better, just learning how to work the system mm-hmm. a little bit. So I think I'm a lot more, you know, competent now at getting things done than I was when I started. Okay. Well, we hope so, right? <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Yes. So now a couple of changes for you for this beginning of your fifth term, you are now the chair of the education committee mm-hmm. and you're moving down into the vice chair of the environment committee, which you chaired right. over your last term. And then you're also still a member of the agriculture and the tourism committees. Right. But the education chair, I mean, that's a pretty big deal out of the state's total budget, which is about what, $20.3 billion, something like that, the state's budget. Well, yeah, it's higher than that. The gen- anyway. Right. The general fund budget. Anyway, yeah. education takes up 34% of it. It's the right. single highest percentage. The second highest percentage is like other 22%. <laughs> so congratulations on that. Is it something well, that you. you sought? Yeah. I, you know, I've always been interested in education. I was the president of the school board in Sturgeon Bay for a number of years. So I have a lot of background in it. So I feel like I, I bring something to the table. And, you know, I had mixed feelings. I, I very much enjoyed being chair of Environment Committee. And that's why I made sure if I was going to do it, that I could stay as vice chair of that. You know, I, I, I want to stay active in that field. It's so important to our area. But education is, it's, it's a challenge for sure because mm-hmm. you get so many emotional issues. I mean, most people have a stake in that. So it is a big challenge. And, and that's why I decided to take it on. You know, it, there are people down there that kind of want committees that don't meet very often so they can just kind of slide through. This one sort of puts a target on your back a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. you, everything you do there, you get a lot more attention for it. Mm-hmm. But I just decided that's how I could you know, best make a difference for the state. Okay. And a lot of the legislation that you have introduced had to do with education as well. Yeah, I've done, and I was the chair of the, we did the Blue Ribbon Commission on school funding a few years ago. So I've been involved in it. Were you on the education committee before you became chair? Yeah, actually I was vice chair. I've been vice chair for several years. Got it. All right. Yeah. So anyway, that's why I, I decided to ask for it. I felt like there were only a couple of us in there that were really, in my opinion, qualified for it, that had enough background. I think like the school funding formula is maybe the single most complicated thing we deal with. Very few people understand it completely. Okay. And so, you know, I felt like I could help. Hmm. Well, I was looking at a couple of statistics in preparation for this, and it looks like Wisconsin definitely does need help in the education realm. We're 40th among states in reading when adjusted for race and income. That's kind of astonishing to me. Is there anything that has been proposed in Wisconsin that would address that? Absolutely. And that's going to be one of my biggest priorities is the reading component of it. You know, there's the saying in education that in the first few years you learn to read and then the rest of your time in school you read to learn. Mm. So if you don't get off to a good start and learn how to read, if you can't read well by the time you're in fourth grade, your chances of graduating, of leading a productive life where you're, you know, self-sufficient, go way, way down. The chances of ending up in prison go way up if you can't read. So it's really, really important. If there's one area we should focus on, it's that. You know, in Wisconsin, we used to be one of the leaders. I know I saw that in 1998. We were number six. Yeah. So we have steadily dropped. And a lot of that goes to, I think, we went off the track. A lot of states did in how reading is taught. You know, when I was young, it was more of a phonics-based thing like the Dick and Jane series and all of that. And we got to 
you know, to what they call whole language method of teaching, which it works for a lot of kids, but there's a significant number. It, it just doesn't work, especially kids that are dyslexic. They have virtually no chance of learning to read using that method. So a lot of states have switched back to at least partially back towards the old method. And we see states like Mississippi that traditionally were at the very bottom now doing pretty well. So we need to change how we do it. Okay. And, you know, I think there's a lot of, I should point out, though, on that, that our biggest problem in Wisconsin is the gap between the races. We are dead last in the country. Mm-hmm. And we really need to, to work on that. And, and I think, when you talk about the gap between the races, explain that a little bit for listeners who don't really know what that means. Well, and I, I don't have the numbers right on the top of my head, but sure. our, our white students in Wisconsin do fairly well. Our black students are the worst in the country. Okay. Of all the states that test, we're last. Mm. That's that separated out by race. Mm-hmm. We're last. Okay. So, you know, when you when you look at our cities that where that we have very high populations of minorities, it doesn't bode well for them. Mm-hmm. And it's again, it's the you know we're going to be seeing the impact of this fifty years from now. So it's scary to think about. You know, when you look at what a small percentage of our minority students can read at grade level. It's very, very sad. Hmm. So we need, anyway, we need to do better with that. Okay. Um, and there is a lot of momentum behind it. We did, we, you know, we introduced legislation. I was the author last session to, to screen kids earlier, to catch the problem, you know, the problems early, because if we can't catch them up by fourth grade, it's unlikely they're ever going to catch up. And that was uh, vetoed, that legislation? It was vetoed, yes. You know, the, the governor, his sort of excuse for it, I guess, was that, you know, we weren't funding enough in how to treat them once we did identify them, you know. And, and I mean, to some extent, he's correct that and we're going to try and do that this time. That's a, a separate piece of it. But I don't think that we should have not done the first piece because we couldn't do the second one at the moment. Mm-hmm. So, but in any case, that it is what it is. But I think, I think he's more willing to work with us now. And I will say that the legislature and the governor over his first, his first four years – never worked together on any, I can't, there's not a single issue where we got together and said, okay, this is what we want. What do you want? I've heard you say that a couple of times. Yeah. What makes you think that it's going to be different this time? I think there is, you know, just we've, we've reached out to him. I know the speaker and the governor met last week. And I think particularly on this issue, he understands that we need to do something on it. And so I'm very... And he comes from an education background. I mean, that is his whole background. Right. He does. One of the big obstacles to to us doing something about reading is that the reading establishment, the people that consider themselves reading experts have been taught in this whole language method mm-hmm. and they're very, very reluctant to change. Mm-hmm. And our colleges have not done a good job. They're, they're Primarily, they're not teaching our teachers how to teach reading. So what we have to do on this is hire, you know, sort of reading coaches to go into the schools and teach our teachers how to teach reading, you know, reteach them. We shouldn't have to do that, but we, we do. And actually around here, several of our school districts are already doing that. Sturgeon Bay is, Gibraltar is, Luxembourg, Casco, and we're seeing the results in their reading scores. They're going up. If, if you teach the kids properly. But we need to do that statewide. And especially, you know, Milwaukee is always our biggest challenge. And because the teachers union is so strong down there, it's difficult to make change. They're just very reluctant to change. This is, you know, this is the way we've always done it. And it was so disgusting when we had that that hearing the last time and all these figures came out and how horribly Wisconsin is doing. 
and these reading specialists, they said, oh, you know, we're doing fine. You just need to give us more money. Well, to give them more money to keep doing the same thing is not going to get the job done. And if, again, if you look at the states that have had great success, Massachusetts, I think that, that's your home state, right? Yes, it is. Th- they, have, they have switched over and they're seeing great results. So, What about Minnesota? They're always in the top. Yeah, I'm. Not, I'm really not sure what Minnesota, if how they're doing on reading right okay. now. You know what they have done. There were several of the southern states. I mentioned Mississippi. They're sort of the poster child for how they've turned it around. But Tennessee is another one that has really, you know, really done much, much better now. Okay. As chair of the education committee, does that mean that you have more access to the governor directly? We're going to find out. I've requested a meeting with him to talk to him about reading. He has. I always hate being critical because it sounds like I'm being partisan, but he has not been as open and available as Governor Walker, for instance, was. Governor Walker, every Wednesday he was in the Capitol and any legislature, legislator of either party, if they wanted to talk to him, they could just call up, make an appointment, and he'd talk to him. And it's been much more difficult with Governor Evers. Okay. So I've made a request to talk to him about this, and you know we'll see. But again, I know it's on his radar, and he knows that we have to do better. Yeah. All right. Well, I was looking up some of the biggest things that are on Wisconsinites' minds. And a lot of these surveys were done because of the midterm elections that were upcoming. But I looked at a couple uh, that were done at the beginning of this year as well. And the top lists normally come up with the economy, threats to democracy, abortion access, health care, and crime. So when I saw that list, and then I saw where we were in education in terms of our numbers, it's got to be really difficult then to get people engaged around this when it's not on top of their minds. Sure, it is with parents. Right. But even you take a county like Door County, which has a median age of, I think it's 55 years old or something like that. Kids are grown, you know, kids are gone. I mean, how do you get people to rally around this idea that we're so far behind in education? Yeah. You know, I've actually, when I've talked about it, people do really pay attention when I when I do talk about it. Yeah, when they do the polling, it doesn't show up, but they're paying attention. And I think, you know, particularly, as you said, the, the young families, they're obviously, it's very much on their minds. So, yeah, it's unfortunate that it's not the top of everybody's, you know, on the top of their minds. Because it's the future. I mean, it's the future of our state. It's the future of our country. Right. And when people ask me, you know, what worries me about the future, it's this. It's seeing that we're not moving in the right direction on that, on so many of the social problems, and they're tied together. You know, if if kids don't finish high school and, and they're not well prepared to go into the workforce, you have a lot more of those other problems, you know, the the drugs, the, you know, broken families, all that kind of thing when people are, you know, we're in poverty. So that's what scares me because I look at all of these indicators and none of them are getting better. They're all getting worse. And we know we're not going to see the full effect of those for, for a while yet. So it's not going to turn around right away. Mm. So what's happening in the legislature for this upcoming session? You're going to be crafting a budget this year. Right. Okay. Yeah. So that'll be the first thing. The governor puts out his budget proposal, which comes out around the end of February. And then from there, it goes to joint finance and we work on it, take things out, put things in and send it back to him kind of in late spring, early summer. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
And and there's a pretty big deficit. It's the biggest ever. Not and deficit, but surplus. I mean, I'm sorry, surplus. Yes. <laughs> right. Oh, thank you for that correction. That would have been horrible. So the biggest surplus ever, and I believe that surplus is $4.6 billion. It's actually gone up from there since So then. is it 6.6? Yeah, it's up yeah, to I thought yeah, it's I in saw that, that newest figure. Okay. Yeah, and it may rise yet even some more. That's crazy. So, so yeah. why is it so high? Well, a lot of it is just that all that federal money came in. Yeah. So that's really a lot of it. And, you know, you, you send everybody a check and they're going to run out and spend it. And then our, our sales tax sales revenues tax. Were, sure. were the highest they've ever been. Right. So most of the states in the country have somewhat of a surplus anyway right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the thing we have to be careful about because it's, it's sort of a one-time anomaly. We can't count on that money being there. So we want to make sure that however we spend that money, we're not – developing new programs that, that are then going to have an ongoing cost mm-hmm. so that we'll be in trouble next time. So what are the Republicans' biggest spending priorities for this upcoming budget that's going to be crafted? Well, you know, I think that we hear a lot from our local governments and we need to do more with that. So that's certainly, I think, going to be one emphasis that we have is, you know, roads and that kind of thing for our local governments. Education, I hope that everyone remembers that, you know, Two years ago when we did the budget, there was so much federal money coming into the schools that we really didn't increase their spending very much at that time. But we knew at the time that we're going to have to give them an extra bump next time because we have to make, you know, take into account what they would have gotten, plus then building on top of that, at least from an inflation standpoint. So schools should be one of our higher priorities. And I'm hoping everybody remembers that because two years ago that we all knew that. Is it hard to throw a bunch of money at a system that isn't functioning properly? Oh, it's yeah, that's the tough, that's the tough argument that we have that people say, you know, we need to hold schools accountable. You know, why should we put more money into failing schools? But the problem with that is how do you measure failing? If you go into any city and you map out the poorest neighborhoods, those are going to be the ones that show up as having failing schools. You know, and it's not necessarily the school's fault. It's just that when you have kids coming to school that are from broken families that no one has ever read a book to them before, they're not going to perform as well. So it's a tough thing because kids from families like that or families that where English isn't the first language, it costs more to educate those kids, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the really tough dilemmas that we have is, you know, people don't want – they want to hold schools accountable – but how do we measure that and encourage them to, to do better? Okay. So what are some of the other spending priorities or what should they be? Well, you know, I think that it's not a spending priority, but I think that we will likely be cutting our taxes. So that's going to be, we want to do that. What what I don't want to do is what has happened a few times in the past where oh, we send everybody a check for however much money, you know. That hasn't happened to me since I've lived here, since okay. I've returned. <laughs> well, sorry. <laughs> don't count on it. Okay. But. So coming up. Yeah. 2023, 2025. No, we would, we would rather do it in a more sustainable way and have a fairer tax, uh, fairer tax code. And if you look at the states around the country that have the lowest tax rates, they do better. I mean, you know, California, for instance, has one of the higher tax burdens, and they're losing people constantly. For the last 12 years, I think, they've lost people to other states. So it really does make a difference, the tax climate that you have. The states with the lower tax burdens – Their populations are going up. People are moving there. Businesses move there. Mm. So, you know, that's the that's the biggest part of it is that if you can keep the tax burden low, businesses do better. People want to live there and all that. And they don't even really recognize the differences unless they're moving from another state. I know I came from Minnesota and I was not able to deduct my health insurance costs in Minnesota. But here you can deduct 100 percent of what you're paying towards health insurance. I was pretty shocked when I 
realize that because that's a huge, that makes a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah. It's really unfortunate sometimes that people don't pay more attention to that. You know, the tax that gets all the attention is the property tax because you have to sure. ma- mail a check in. Mm-hmm. If we had to mail a check in all the time for our other taxes, like most of us get it taken out of our, you know, of our checks. So we don't ever see it. If you had to mail in a check every time, I think people would pay a whole lot more attention to what's being spent. This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by Door County Medical Center. Are you looking for a job in Door County with excellent benefits, culture, and potential for advancement through tuition reimbursement programs? Door County Medical Center is hiring. For more than 75 years, Door County Medical Center has been the leader in health and wellness for Door and Kiwanee counties. Their integrated medical center provides a wide range of specialties, including primary care, behavioral health, general surgery, the Women and Children's Center, the Door Orthopedic Center, the Door County Cancer Center, and more. To join the team, apply today at dcmedical.org slash careers. All right. So it sounds like you want education funding, obviously, to be increased this year. And then you're looking at tax breaks as well. Anything else on the agenda? Oh, you know, like I said, the the infrastructure, the local government piece of it, I think those are the big things I see. I think that there are going to be, you know, a lot of other areas, obviously, and mm-hmm. I, and Nothing's springing into my head right off the bat. Okay. So one thing that's happening closer to home just recently, there is a concentrated animal feedlot operation that wants to expand almost double. And this is in Forestville. And they're they're called CAFOs for short. But a CAFO is basically anything that has a thousand animal unit equivalents or higher. And so... This one would be expanding from, I believe it's about seven seventy six hundred animal units right now to fourteen thousand seven hundred animal units. So that puts it among the largest CAFOs in the state. I think the top one, when I received a report from the state, it was about seventeen thousand animals. So what can you say about that? I know that you've been on the Environment Committee. Good thing, bad thing ambivalent thing? Well, so, and I was also a large animal veterinarian, so I worked with, you know, farms a lot. That's right. So I, I, you know, it's, it's an issue I've dealt with an awful lot. You know, in the legislature, we, do, we, we don't have any role in hearings like this. We help set the rules. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things that I've been proud of it, since I got in is that, you know, people always wanted separate rules for spreading manure in Door County, well, in the karst region up here, than you know, than we had in the rest of the state. So, so the amount of manure you spread is dependent on how deep your soil is now up here. So we got that done, and I think it, it has made a big difference. I think if you look at the well testing in Door and Kiwani counties that came out last year, they're considerably better than they were just a few years ago. So we have made a difference. Yeah, I just actually at the Land Conservation Committee, the county's Land Conservation Committee yesterday, they were going over some of those DATCAP, the groundwater testing that they received. Mm-hmm. And the summary of it was that they're, they have no concerns with pesticides, nitrates, or E. coli in any of the groundwater samples that they collected, and they won't even be doing it again for another five years. Yeah. So, it, you know, I, I, again, I think we've done some great things that we've made the rules, you know, better mm-hmm. for, for, to protect our groundwater around here. So it's up to the DNR to decide, you know, whether this is going to pass or not. I think one thing, though, people look at sometimes is they look at the total number of cows in that herd mm-hmm. and they don't look at the number of acres per cow, which is what they really should be looking at. Mm-hmm. Because we've had cases, you know, there was a, a case down in the Kiwani County area a couple of years ago that was all over the news, I think, 
some of the politicians used it in commercials where somebody had brown water coming out of their tap. Well, that was like a, a 50 or 100 cow herd. So it's not the size of the herd that matters so much is do they have enough land to spread it? Are they spreading it properly and not you know, spreading it before a rainstorm or in the winter and all that kind of thing. Right. You know, so. But sure, but that's where you start. If you have 17,000 cows, you have 17,000 cows worth of cow manure to spread somewhere, to right. get, get rid of somewhere. So yes, of course you need larger acreage, but wouldn't that be part of their wastewater permit that they would oh. have to have enough acres in order to be able to spread that yeah. much? Oh, absolutely. It is. So then I don't, I mean, I've heard that before, but I, I don't, I don't understand that when really, if you have 10,000 cows, then you're going to have a lot less manure to have to spread. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, they, they definitely figure that in that. Do you have enough acres that can handle that much manure? Right. So obviously if you have 17,000 cows, you have to have many, many thousands of acres. Sure. That you can spread that manure on. Right. So but I guess uh, more to your point is that it, it only takes one cow with manure spread improperly to impact somebody's well water. Right. And, you know, it used to be around here that, you know, when I moved to Door County as a veterinarian, 1984, I started my practice. So it's been a long time. But, you know, back then, there were, we had like 200 dairy farms that I did work for at that time. So we had tons of small farms. And, and now we have, you know, way less than that, but they're obviously much bigger. But we actually had more troubles back then. People don't mm. – sometimes people want to blame the big herds for the problems. But, you know, when I first moved here, it was common. I would hear it all the time in the springtime. People would say, oh, yeah, my water runs brown for a couple of weeks. And, then, you know, and then it gets better. And that was because – People spread manure all winter, and then when the snow melted, it flushed right down into the groundwater. Mm -hmm. And so that was a common thing back then, which we would never tolerate that now. Sure. So practices have definitely They have, but it's also, it's also, those were all small herds. We didn't have big herds back then mm -hmm. at all. So small herds, you know, actually the rules are much more stringent on those big farms. Once you reach the CAFO status, they watch you much more carefully. The requirements are much more strict. So... I don't look at the total size of the herd. I look at, do they have enough land? Are they, you know, following the proper, you know, management guidelines and all that. But that would actually go with the permit, right? So you it wouldn't even have to look at that. I mean, there's no way that a larger herd is going to get a permit if they don't have a place to dispose or store that manure. Right. Absolutely not. Yeah. So I, I guess. And Kiwani County has more problems than Dora County. They have. Although, with groundwater. Yeah. I mean, they were sort of the poster child for groundwater problems, but you know, in reality, honestly, they were never the worst in the state. They were just, there were a lot of people that were very interested in it and they, and they did a lot of testing and there was a lot of attention and it was bad. I mean, I'm not saying it wasn't bad, mm -hmm. but there are other places. And in fact, it, it, you know, Kiwani did a, did a lot of things. They got very proactive and, and their groundwater is, is much better than it was a few years ago. And they did more testing in the Southwestern part of the state and their groundwater came back worse than Kiwani's was. And they were calling Kiwani right away and saying, geez, what have you guys done? How, you know, how are you, how are you handling this? So Kiwani County was never an outlier, particularly. They just, they got a lot of the attention. They became the, the poster child for, for groundwater issues. Okay. All right. Well, that hearing, that Department of Natural Resources hearing, public hearing is February 7 for that yeah. expansion for the Forestville Dairy. And just to reiterate, I don't, you know, in the legislature, we, I don't have a role whatsoever in that. I, again, I help set the rules mm -hmm. that the DNR then follows, but it's up to them to decide whether they follow that or not. And, you know, a lot of times 
people think that, oh, especially when I was chair of the Environment Committee, oh, you control this. It's like, no, that's not my job at all. Sure. But legislators do initially come up with the rules. Yeah, we I help, mean, in order definitely. to legislate and, and then they come up, the agency comes up with the rules and then the legislature has to approve those rules. Right. So, I mean, you have a hand in, in definitely making sure that right. the protections are in place and those rules are in place. Yeah. But as far as this individual hearing, I have no say sure. whether they approve that or not. Right. So. Okay. All right. Another thing close to home just okay. happened last evening. The Department of Natural Resources, again, their topic, Potawatomi State Park Observation Tower. So that's been going on for quite some time. The tower was closed in 2017. It has structural damage. It's been kind of like a political football ever since then. I know that you've been supportive of it. Senator Andre Jacques is supportive of it. The Sturgeon Bay Historical Society Foundation hired a consultant in order to study it. Almost every single municipality surrounding it, the city of Sturgeon Bay, the county of Door, and then other agencies, Destination Door County, the Door County Museum, they've all supported repairing this tower, which is on the national and state registers of historic places. So the governor came out last April and announced consultant Grafe that was going to be preparing design options. And those two design options were supposed to be a restoration of the tower, one, and then what would happen if they built a new tower. So last evening, the DNR held what was a public information meeting. It lasted less than 30 minutes. Uh, you couldn't see if there was anybody on the call. I did reach out to them and learn that there were 104 people who were part of that virtual meeting. They gave the presentation. They didn't ask for any input. And then they said, so take the survey by February 13 so you can decide which one of these options that you like. So that's what they did last evening. And their recommendation is for what they call a helical ramp, a 1,300-foot helical ramp and a brand new tower. Yeah. So what do you think? Well, I, you know... I, I'm honestly, I've been disgusted by the whole process that has happened. And I know you and I have talked about it many times over the last several years. So last, I mean, first off, I have to say nobody of all the hundreds of emails I've gotten and phone calls, I've never had anyone say, we need a new tower there. Everyone has said, we want to fix the old tower. And they said that to the DNR in a survey that the DNR did last year. Yep. 300 and something responses, and all of them said that they wanted the state to repair the tower. Right. And, you know, the, the administration's attitude has been that if we're going to – first, in the beginning, they said that it was beyond repair, that they would have to replace more than 50% of the materials, and therefore it's a rebuild, would then, by law, have to be ADA accessible. You know, the Search Bay Historical Society, once they funded or supported that – other study with a different engineering group said, no, it can be repaired. And after reviewing it again, the DNR said, yeah, it can be repaired. We don't have to replace more than 50%. But and that's they, what the new consultant said as yeah, well. He it said can that be too. repaired. He's, yeah, he said, absolutely, it can be repaired. But they have stuck to this idea that it has to be ADA accessible. And when you do that, it makes it unaffordable. You can't do it. So, you know, it's so disgusting because I think – and you and I talked about it at the time. When they when he announced, we're going to do this, we're going to have this study done, and just coincidentally, the results are going to come out after the election. Mm -hmm. I told everyone then, okay, what's going to happen is they're going to come up with two proposals that are way beyond what's feasible you know, financially. And then he's going to put it in the budget, which he says he's going to do, and it's going to get taken out because we're not going to spend $6 million 
on a tower. And let's talk about the cost, actually, because the options that they proposed, one of them was to repair the existing tower, and one of them was to build a new tower. But both of those options came with a ramp option. Mm -hmm. So there's no way that what they're saying to us with these options is there's no way that they're going to do this without a ramp. Right. So it's just a matter of whether it's a linear ramp like the one in Peninsula State Park or a helical ramp, which is, you know, you go round and round and round all the way up. So the cost between the new tower with the ramp and the repair of the existing tower with a ramp, there's not a big difference. It's $6,058,800 to repair the existing tower with a helical ramp. And then it's $5,943,326 to do a new tower with the helical ramp. So very little difference in the cost there. However, what they're saying is that over 40 years, the maintenance that you would have to do in a 90-year-old tower is going to be a lot higher than it would be for building a new tower. So the way that they projected it out, it's about half the cost over 40 years. So it's about a million dollars over 40 years to maintain the original repaired tower versus 500000 for the new tower. So what they said is that whatever option that people say that they want when they go online and take this survey by February 13, then the governor will put this into the budget and it will cover the option. So what you're saying is that this is way too expensive that Republicans are definitely going to take this out of the budget. Oh, there's no question. I mean, you know, there are, I think it's about 18 towers like this around the state. They did that with Eagle Tower, which at the time they said, because Eagle Tower, it's the cash cow basically of the whole park system throughout the state. Mm-hmm. There's so many visitors there. They make so much money off that. They said, we're going to do it here, but we're not going to do it anywhere else. And that sort of makes sense. Right, because it is the most visited park. That and what, the Dell? Devil's Lake. Devil's Lake, Right, That's I think it. the two of them account for like 80% of the the income for the entire park system. And that one was how much, that ramp? I think four, four and a half. Close that, to four and a half million, right. Right, in that ballpark. Okay. So if you were going to do another tower like that, you wouldn't do it in the same county. Mm. You know, it, it makes no sense. Mm-hmm. They're not going it, to, it's not going to happen. Nobody has ever asked for that. Mm. So they're, they're giving us two options that nobody ever wanted either one of them. Mm-hmm. You know, give us the option of fixing the thing. And, the you know, when that study was done a few years ago, the cost on just fixing the tower, restoring it to what it was, was like 250000 Right. Now, that was a number of years ago. It was, several, it was yeah. a few years ago. So I think even, you know, it might be a half million now. Mm-hmm. But that's affordable. You know, I, I hate to even think what they spent on this study. I'm going to find that out mm-hmm. because it's a, a total waste of money. It was done politically and... I think anybody that was looking at this objectively knew this was what was going to happen. We're going to come out with a plan that's going to cost more than could be afforded. So it's a total waste of money. It does absolutely nothing for the people of Wisconsin, this study, because it's not going to happen. And so then it becomes the same political football that it's been the entire time, which is they say, okay, well, we have this in the budget, but the Republicans took it out of the budget. So you do need to blame them. Right. Exactly. That's exactly what what the intent of it was. So it served that purpose. So, you know, to me, I think, honestly, Governor Evers should pay for it out of his campaign fund, not (laughs) out of the general fund, since that's what the intent was. What the only hope I think at this point of saving the tower is a lawsuit. And I've already spoken spoken with the Sturgeon Bay Historical Society. They're working with the State Historical Preservation Office, and they plan to sue them. Because if you really? own, yeah, 
if you own a, a, a property that's listed on Are the, you revealing something that they I would think want I am. you to reveal? Yeah, no, she said I could. Okay. Because she knew I was coming over here today, so Got she it. said that was okay to say that. Okay. So if you own a property on the historic registry, you are obligated to turn in a plan on how are you going to preserve that. That's right. You've talked about that and a couple of times. And they have never done that. No, and you have asked for that specifically, and they have said something like, we're working on it? Yeah, they give you the runaround. Yeah, they've said we're working on it. Mm -hmm. And now it's documented that it can be repaired. We're happy to give them the money to repair it, mm -hmm. but they don't want that. So it'll be interesting. That, But I think that's the only way it's going to be saved is, is by a lawsuit because the administration has made it very clear they're not going to do anything unless it's 100% accessible, and that's just not with a ramp. With a ramp. So right. it's not economically feasible. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the only hope is that lawsuit, I think. And, of course, it wouldn't be 100% accessible because this is a 1,300-foot-long yeah, ramp. That's a very good point. So it would be probably 30% accessible. I mean, because there are a lot of people with, you know, canes and wheelchairs who are just not going up Eagle Tower even because no. it's too long. So yeah, this absolutely. would be, right. So it's not 100% and it's also not for people who are vision impaired or hearing impaired or have other impairments. They're really just focusing for some reason on just this one aspect of it. Right. And I'm, yeah, it's hard to understand because the law... When you're repairing a structure, the law does not require that you make it accessible. It's only for new construction. Mm -hmm. And especially when it's a historic structure, which this is, the bar is much higher as far as whether it has to be accessible or not. And I, I mean, the analogy I've used is the, the rotunda in the Capitol, you know, beautiful historic building. It's not accessible to get to the top of that. So, so does the governor think that we shouldn't repair that, mm -hmm. you know, because it's not accessible? That's silly. Mm -hmm. But it's the same thing. It's, you know... Fix the tower. It's not that it. It's not that expensive. So what about this? I mean, and and this has gone back and forth a number of times as well. The State Building Commission is the organization that actually decides what's going to be maintained or repaired. I mean, right. they're the ones who approve projects. So there's about two hundred million dollars for maintenance on state facilities, and they've always said, and they've said this to you as well, we can't actually approve a project there for the tower because we need to have a study done. So now that this assessment has been done, can't it now be brought before the State Building Commission? That's very astute of you to pick that up. Because, okay. Because so, I didn't think of that right away, but it's but I did, after a while I thought about that. That's exactly right. Okay. That that was their excuse before because they had said they were going to put it on the, bring it before the building commission at one point, and then they didn't, and their excuse was, oh, well, we don't have a, a study. Mm -hmm. Well, now they have a study because that one last night, they had it separated out as far as repairing the tower, and they said clearly it can be repaired. Yes. So now – Bring it to the building commission. And Senator Jacques is on the building commission. So he is again for this. I yeah. wasn't sure if he was or not. So, yeah. So, you know, that we're going to bring that up. Mm -hmm. You know, again, there's money there for it to be done. This could have been done a long time ago if they had the will. They have just thrown up one excuse after another. And they have not. It's like they have not bargained in good faith with us. They just they look for excuses, not for, you know, if they wanted to get it done, it would be it would have been done a long time ago. So do you think there is a difference in philosophy with a new DNR secretary there? I know that you met with Preston Cole, the former one who is now since retired. Right. But on this topic specifically, I mean, do you think that there is a different philosophy in that office now? You know, I don't I, I don't know the new secretary. I, I'm sure I'll meet him. But I, to be honest, I don't think it's going to matter because those mm. all of those departments 
you know, they're called executive departments because they work directly under the governor. So they're going to take their marching orders from the governor. Mm -hmm. And so I think that they've dug their heels in on this, and I can't imagine him coming in and and going against what's been said. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I don't don't think that's going to matter. So, you know, we'll try with the building commission, but I think that lawsuit is going to be, if anything's going to work, it's going to be that. Because they have... They have a legal and a moral responsibility to fix this thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. One final thing before I let you go, and this is something that is on the hearts and minds of everyone or was at one point after Roe v. Wade and the decision to overturn that, and we reverted back to Wisconsin's very old law on abortion. And I heard from so many young women that I have never, you know, they were never mobilized, you know, behind politics or politically involved. And this really got a lot of young women mobilized. But do you see anything on the horizon that Republicans will be doing with the abortion law to update it, to do something with it so that it's not flat out illegal for every single person to have an abortion? Yeah, you know, I thought you said one more item. I thought maybe I, I was going to get away without that one. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, that's probably the most contentious emotional issue that we deal with. Everyone has, you know, everyone has their own moral compass that, you know, determines how they feel about it. You know, I would like to see us reach some compromise on it. Certainly, the majority, vast majority of people think it should at least be legal for rape and incest. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, we're in a situation where we have some members in the legislature that refuse to budge in, in any way on that. You know, on the other side of it, though, we have, you know, the administration who has, they want full abortion access up to basically up until birth. So I, I think that the general public is in the middle there. You know, I'm pro-life, but I, I recognize that the laws that we pass need to reflect the morals of the majority of people. So, you know, I think that Ideally, we would do, you know, do some sort of compromise, again, at the least legalized for rape and incest. But, and I think we will be able to do something in the Assembly, but I think in the Senate, it's going to be difficult. I think it's similar to what you saw in Washington with, you know, with their speaker election, where a few members of the Republican Party were able to hold it up for the, for the entire caucus. And it's that sort of thing where, you know, the majority of people, I think, in our caucus would like to do something but there are enough people that don't want to do anything that it's going to make it very difficult. On the other side, you know, Governor Evers has said he will not sign anything other than, you know, complete repeal. So, again, I think it's going to be a challenge. I think that, you know, there is a lawsuit challenging that mm-hmm. old, old law. So if the Supreme Court would decide to throw that out, I think that would make a big difference. Then that would sort of force us to the table. But, again, the governor has to sign something, and he has said he won't sign anything. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a really tough issue. So it, since it is such a tough issue, is it something that Republicans will stay away from because they don't really have to revisit? Well, I mean, I think we, you know, prior to Roe versus Wade being overturned, you could, no matter what your position on was on it, it didn't matter. People didn't vote. Not many people voted on that issue. Now I don't think we it can be avoided. I think in the last election, you know, it was used to turn out the, the vote, especially on college campuses. And I think it had an impact, you know. So I, I don't think we can just ignore it. Mm-hmm. So, but we will see. Again, in the assembly, I know this, you know, our speaker has made it clear he would like to do something on it. 
but I just it's going to be tough be, primarily because of the Senate. But we have members in our house as well that just will not budge whatsoever. On um, it. Well, I would urge them to read a book that I'm reading. It's it's called Behave. And it is from a biologist and neurologist. It's basically about the brain and talks about how the brain functions and how that causes behaviors, both good and bad behaviors. But there are certain parts of this book that, you know, prove that where abortion and, and it's not it's not a book about abortion in any way at all. It's just like a 1000 page book and maybe, you know, 10 pages will cover something to do with criminology. And it is proven that when women cannot get abortions, then children who are not wanted are born. And children who are not wanted who are born become criminals at higher rates than other people in society. So it actually has repercussions societally and not just, it's not uh, I know you said moral a couple of times. You know, it's not just a morality issue. It is a societal issue. Yeah, I, I guess one of the reasons I've never liked talking about the issue is because I have never seen anyone's mind be changed through through a discussion of it, you know. So, so yeah, you can make all these intellectual arguments on both sides and all that, but it does come down, to, you know, it's such a moral issue in people's minds that, you know, if you believe that, you know, from the time that, egg is fertilized, that's a human being. And if you kill it, it's murder. Then there's nothing you can rationalize with any of those arguments that's going to make somebody change their mind. So, you know, that's what makes it very difficult. I guess my focus in the legislature, you know, I had the birth control bill to try to make it more, more accessible to women has been to try to, you know, to, to, to allow women to have better access so that we can prevent them from having to make that decision to abort. I know it's not 100%, but mm-hmm. I think the more that we can do those kinds of things and minimize the instances where, you know, abortion is the is the choice a woman makes is my, you know, has been my philosophy on it. But again, it's, it's going to be an exceptionally difficult issue to deal with just because you have such strong feelings on, on both ends of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, nobody ever said it was going to be easy to be a legislator, right? Uh, I guess not. <laughs> but there must be something about it that you like since you are returning again for a fifth term. Well, yeah. And it is, it's very gratifying to feel like you've made a difference. And just, you know, one of the things that doesn't get attention is the times that we can help people through their problems, whether it's, you know, a kid that has to drop out of school because they don't have financial aid or, you know, there was a woman last year whose husband was a World War II veteran who had died and they didn't give her a marker for the grave. And she came to me and was, and we were able to, you know, to get that done. And when I saw her, she was in tears thanking us. It's like those kinds of, you know, are kind of really rewarding things when you're able to help government help people, you Mm -hmm. know? So, so that's those kinds of things, I guess, make it worthwhile. You know, when I deal with these other issues that are not very pleasant, uh, Mm -hmm. I try to think of the, the, the reasons I like to do it. All right. Well, Joel, thanks so much. We've gone for almost 50 minutes and it kind of flew by. Yes. But thank you so much for coming again. um, I'm Deborah Fitzgerald, editor of The Pulse, talking with State Representative Joel Kitchens today in the Bailey's Harbor podcast studio. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com slash shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.